electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the fate of the rally with the S&P 500 coming off its worst week in nearly five months. The question, is today's bounce for real or is it just one giant head fake? Our investment committee is standing by to tackle that debate and much more. Joining me for the hour right here at Post 9, Joe Terranova, Shannon Sakosha, Jason Snipe, and Jim Labenthal. But first, let's get a quick check on the markets at noon Eastern. Looking at the Dow right now at market session highs, I should say. Up 1%. Same story for the S&P, up over a half a percent. The Nasdaq kind of tipping between negative and positive over the last few hours. Right now, fractionally higher. We have to mention the small caps. The Russell 2000, fractionally lower in the red right now. And all that leads us to the chart of the day. We're talking Apple, lower for a fifth straight session. The stock coming off its worst week of the year following earnings. Joe, your long Apple shares down 2% right now, coming off their worst day of 2023 on Friday seeing some negative momentum. So I, it, absolutely it's about Apple, but I think it's, a, it's even a larger conversation. It's about mega caps as well because Tesla's down 9% over the course of the last five days. Apple's down 5% over the last five days. So uh, listen, uh, the, the way the strategy owns Apple, the way the strategy owns Tesla, I like it because we're equal weighted. So we don't have the significant exposure. And I think that's an important question for investors right now. What is your actual exposure in your portfolio to these mega caps? Because as they've rallied, it's obviously statistically grown further. So do you want to be market cap weighted? Do you want to be equally equally cap weighted? I believe in being equally cap weighted. Now, specific to the the fundamentals and the technicals of Apple as my earpiece falls out of my ear, (laughs) um, specific to the, the fundamentals and the technicals of Apple. All right. So where are we right now with Apple? We are pulling back within the critical moving averages. We're all the way back to where we were on Worldwide Developers Conference Day that Monday in early June. So we've erased all of the gains back to there. So structurally, uh, from a technical perspective, the bull trend in Apple from the lows that we witnessed at the end of uh, 2022 are still well in place. It's just how do you want to own these mega cap names? And I think given where we are, equal weighted is the right way. All right. So if you feel like equal weighted is the right way, were you concerned? Did you miss on some of the run-up earlier this year? Absolutely. Okay. So we're getting a little bit back right now. So you feel like you're catching up right now. So it it absolutely, from the end of January until the end of April, we suffered being an equal weighted strategy. And anyone in an equally weighted strategy has suffered and underperformed the S&P so far year-to-date because you've had such significant concentration from the big seven. But you feel like it's going to pay off now. Well, I don't know if I want to use the word pay off. I think from a risk management perspective, that's the right way to think about these when I've got a 30-year treasury that's galloping higher 35 basis points over the course of five days. And the market clearly is in a position right now where it's working off some of the overboard technical conditions. Uh, Jason, I'm going to come over to you right now. So Joe's saying it's not just about Apple, it's about all the mega cap tech. Correct me if I'm wrong, 
We saw five of those Magnificent Seven names. They beat on revenue and earnings last week. Right. So why aren't we seeing positive momentum? Why are we seeing the Nasdaq come off a pretty much 3% slide last week? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it is, it's really a testament to all the growth that we've seen already this year. I mean, this year has been all about multiple expansion. Obviously, earnings haven't been as great. Earnings are down. We have about 85% of the S&P has reported so far this year. Uh, that's down around 5%, a little better than what was expected. But I think what, we're, what the market is really looking at today is the broadening out of the rally. So industrials are doing well. Energy is starting to catch some steam. Uh, transports have only had, had a really great year so far. So for me, when I, when I think about mega cap tech and, and the run that they have, I think it's time for a breather. You know, Apple's, Apple's earnings were largely in line. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad quarter by any stretch of the imagination. Not at all. You know, services are strong. China's up around 8%. So for me, I think it's just, it's just bottled into a break, a real break from it. Really break. So, so, Jim, I see you're waiting to talk. Also getting some reports that the new iPhone is going to come out mid-September. Normally that would juice this stock. Still down almost 2% right now. Do you guys remember Sam Kinison? The guy, yeah, you know, used to yell a lot like, on Howard Stern quite a bit. Yeah, wasn't he the comedian who always said, like, say it, just say it. Okay. <laughs> You're not going to do Sam Kennison. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the extent this is not, of it. This is not the time for impressions, but we get the idea. Okay, that's the extent of it. This market can rally without Apple, okay? This market can rally without tech. And this doesn't mean that Apple's flawed, okay? It's down 10%. It's up from a tie. It's having a correction. Guess what? Stocks have correction. Look at the market overall. Look at the S&P 500. And, Joe, I think this is the point that you're making. Um, you know, the market overall is 2% off of its high. The market's up 65 basis points on the S&P 500 right now. Apple's down 2%. I would really like to put to bed the idea that the market has to go in the direction that Apple or, frankly, tech overall goes. And, Joe, I'm just really trying to accent the point that you're making, which is that the equal weight index, the average stock, the rest of the market can do and is doing just fine here. All right, so you're saying that, but we got to remember, big tech. Still... I said it. No, I know you said it. We I, I, we got the reference. A big Howard Stern listener, um, but you still you say the market doesn't need tech to rally, but it's still when you look at uh, Microsoft, Apple, Meta, Tesla, et cetera, it's still a third, more than a third of the S and P, Shannon. So if tech's moving sideways or it's falling back, how does the rally continue? Or can it? Well, I, I think it can. I mean, there there there's certainly other areas of potential strength, but I I, I just want to you know throw out to, to my colleagues here, um, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, this too far, too fast rally in mega cap tech. Would we have seen some of this weakness if we didn't see what happened in terms of Fitch and the Treasury issuance and now this renewed concern about long duration stocks? Um, you know, you know, you go back two weeks and we were talking about the potential for some of these for some of these earnings to potentially disappoint and not deliver on the expansion. Um, I, I think without what's happened from a rate perspective in the last few days, I don't know that we would get this much weakness in terms of, you know, our expectations that this is a mega cap tech unwind. Um, I think, the, the, you know, from the overall perspective of the way uh, market cap weighted index is built today, yes, technology has to participate. But I would say that, that, I mean, Jim's made this point, right? If I get, you know, bump along on Apple for, you know, for the next few years, and you see that in the rest of the technology sector, as long as that leadership is moving to another area of the market, you saw in the jobs report last week, 2,000 manufacturing jobs lost, 19,000 construction jobs gained, though. It, don't we going to have this, this large kind of industrial upswell that could potentially drive some market behavior? So I would say it's not necessary that tech fully participates. 
It certainly can't be a detractor, though. I think that's more of the, the concern in the next couple of months. You know, Joe, to your point also, Tesla down 3% today, down almost 8% over the last week. And right now, uh, we are seeing the impact on the markets. But today, the Nasdaq's still in the green, fractionally, but still in the green with Tesla de declining. I want to bounce a few things off of you. Uh, Wells Fargo, Chris Harvey, put out a note today saying in part, a sell-off, but not an inflection point. He goes on to say, long-term, we do not believe this is an inflection point. That probably comes post-summer when the calendar becomes more active and conference season whips up risk appetite. Agree or disagree? I, I think the general consensus is, is that we are not at an inflection point, or let's call it what it really is suggesting. We're not at a peak for the equity market. I am still a believer that the fourth quarter will be a very strong quarter for the equity market, and that's where you have the highest probability of taking out the all-time high. I think, unfortunately, in the near term, the equity market is following the fixed income market, and I, I don't see how that changed any time, uh, certainly not this week. You have a tremendous amount of issuance from Treasury, $103 billion. Tuesday, you have three years. Wednesday, you have 10 years. Thursday, you have 30 years. Obviously, we have CPI. We know what the expectation is going to be there on Thursday. So today, there's a relative calm when you measure the Treasury market versus the, the volatility of the last five days. The volatility of the last five days has been uncomfortably extreme, in particular at the long end of the curve. And without question, you have a battle at the long end of the curve. You have the asset management industry that is long and it continues to go long duration. And then you have hedge funds and speculators who are on the other side of that. They're short the Treasury market. So when you're in a place where the Treasury market drives the price action of the equity market, that's not a good place to be in. You're, that's where you get the correction. You're saying the attractive yields in the Treasuries is driving the action in the equity market? The volatility. Okay. The volatility certainly in the long end. Just as an example, a 30-year Treasury has a 37 basis point range just over the last five trading days. Uh, that's above what the uh, normal range is on a 30-day period. Yeah, Jim, I, I see you raising your hand over there. So well, what's your thought about yields right now? Important to note, the 10-year yield is back above 4%. Still not at its high of this year, about four and a quarter, but pretty elevated right now. It actually four point, uh, sorry, 4.08. So Joe always does a very good job of keeping his finger on the pulse of the market, sort of the sentiment that's out there. I, I, I think you do that excellently, as does uh, Shannon and Jason, but I just want to key off of what you're saying here, which is to remind everybody where we are. Yields, we're talking about that a lot. They matter, but there isn't that much else to talk about, right? We're 85% through the S&P 500 uh, second quarter reporting season. Sure, we got Disney uh, coming up this Wednesday. We got NVIDIA in a couple of weeks. Yes, we've got the CPI coming up, but let's face it, it's six weeks until the next Fed meeting. You're going into the dog days of summer with a lot of catalysts behind us. The market has rallied. So the market is looking for things to key in on. Rates are one, and with the direction they're going, it's just not positive for the markets, okay? It isn't whether we're looking at Apple, Shannon, I think you brought that up a second ago, or things that have been quiescent for a little while, like the regional banking index. Like, the, the regional banks do not like where the 10-year is. I put all this together, and I say, I agree with Joe, if I heard you correctly, fourth quarter is going to be strong. I don't think you said this, but I will. I think we're going to have the traditional late summer swoon into, a, into an ugly September, average returns in September, negative 1.1% on the S&P 500. Get ready for it. I am. All right. So you know who else is watching the markets? Mike Wilson. Mike Wilson out with a new note today, too. 
I know you said that rates are the only thing to talk about, but that's certainly what he's talking about. He says, in part, this rise in rates should, should start to call into question equity valuation, something we were talking about earlier in Worldwide Exchange. You see a stock like Amazon at 79 times, Alphabet on the lower end of the Magnificent Seven valuations, Jason, 22 times, still above the S&P. Without a doubt. So, I mean, the S&P is trading at 19 times forward, and I, and I alluded to this earlier. I mean, this year has been about multiple expansion. Earnings haven't followed through yet. I think what we're expecting coming into 2024. You said yet, though. Yet, yet. I, I do see some follow through coming into 2024 and, and margins to come back to higher levels and also a real focus on profitability. But this year has been about, about cost cutting, especially in the tech in the tech orbit, you know, and I think you'll start to see some follow through. We saw that as an example with Amazon, really strong quarter efficiencies, cost cutting has started to play out. I think you'll see some of that coming into later half. But we didn't see it with Meta. They actually raised their CapEx guidance, plan to spend more, not only on staff for AI, but data centers. So you're not seeing it across the board. Cost cutting isn't the theme across the board. So when you say yet, we're going to see earnings coming up at the next quarter that's going to justify these valuations. What's the yet? I think coming in, going into 2024, I think, I think to, to Jimmy's point, seasonally, we're in a tough period. Going into 2024, I think fourth quarter earnings will be strong, you know, and, and we'll see the follow through going into next year. And also thinking about, you know, the soft lending beat drum has gotten stronger and stronger and possibly, you know, obviously the Fed is at the end of the cycle, but maybe some, some cutting going into 2024, and I think that's part of the callus. I would just, I would state too, you just brought up Meta in terms of thinking about spending and cost cutting. You're right, this, the story isn't just cost cutting, but I think it's discipline around capital allocation. I think if you look at a lot of the big cap tech games, they've taken down a lot of that, what I would call, um, aspirational spend, you know, from an innovation standpoint, which is basically, you know, if we lose money on this, that's okay because we have so much cash on the balance sheet. So we're talking about Reality Labs for Meta, <laughs> some other projects, some other right. companies. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, you know, I think, you know, Web 3.0, like that wasn't as exciting to people as AI because AI feels transformative to other industries. I think it's much more tangible. I think it resonates. And so I think the justification in terms of companies spending on AI over the course of the next couple of years is going to feel a lot better for investors than some of the, the pet projects that a lot of these tech companies were investing in. All right. So it sounds like you guys are you're kind of questioning where the rally is right now. You sound a little bit like RBC. I want to hit one more note with you guys. Uh, title of this note is due for a pause. So this is interesting. RBC, they say they're year end target for the S&P 500, 4250. That's a 5 percent decline from today. But they got one model. They got one model at 4800, 6 percent upside. Go on to say we have we have become concerned that the rally in the S&P 500 is due for a pause in the months ahead. It sounds like everybody pretty much agrees right now we might be seeing that pause. Yeah, and again, I think the way you, that you look at that and you properly measure it is at the end of July, where was price relative to the critical moving averages? The distance was above the, the, the normal uh, trend. So a 50-day moving average at the end of July was 4.6% uh, below price. A 200-day moving average was 10.9% below price. Where are we now? For a 50-day, you've narrowed that distance to 1.9%. And for a 200-day, you've narrowed that distance to 8.9%. So price is coming down to shake the hand of the critical moving averages. The structure of the critical moving averages are positive. And I still think, overwhelmingly, a lot of this corrective price action in the last week is technical in its nature. And to Shannon's point, the cattle, or the, I don't want to use the word the catalyst, I think the excuse was the Fitch uh, downgrade right. and the reaction in the long end of the Treasury curve. 
So everybody agree that was just an excuse for a bit of a sell-off, a bit of a pullback that a lot of people were forecasting anyway? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here on the other side of the pullback. Uh, for people who may say, and there are still some naysayers out there who are saying, okay, we're going lower, there's critical structural flaws in the market and the economy, I would say that's a very hard case to make. Okay, so let's just for a second assume that we agree there's a pullback, maybe not even a full correction, but just a pullback, 5 to 7%. Something dramatically bad has to happen for that pullback to turn into a dramatic downturn, more 10%. You have to see, I think, Shannon, you were talking about the soft landing scenario. You have to see that fly out of the window for some reason. Maybe unemployment picks up. Maybe, maybe inflation doesn't come down as quickly as everybody expects and the Fed continues to raise interest rates. But on the trajectory we're on right now economically, a pullback is expected, but not more than that. You should expect the fourth quarter rally after a setup like this uh, this year has been. All right. So. Would the dramatic thing be the Fed actually hiking at its next meeting? I mean, looking at the CME right that. now. You need more. You need more than that. that. So, I mean, one more hike. Nobody wants it, but the market can take it. All right. Interesting take. All right. Turning back to tech, the Nasdaq coming off its worst week since March. BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky out with a new note today saying, in part, rotate out of tech and into energy. So pretty strong move right there. We've got a lot of energy. We're going to start with you, Joe T. you got a lot of energy in the Joe T ETF. Is this the time? Is this the moment to get out of that tech trade, to pile into energy as we see oil prices really moving to the upside over the last few weeks? I was somewhat surprised to see that uh, the strategy moved further long and even more overweight energy than it had been. Um, I thought there would be a reduction in our exposure to energy, but there was not. So the energy exposure now is above 11 percent. We were around 10 percent coming into the quarterly rebalance at the end of July. Uh, for perspective, the S&P 500 is somewhere around four and a half percent. So we added Schlumberger, we ha- added Halliburton. Uh, largely those were added because of now seeing a trough in the revenue growth decline. We also added Cotera. Uh, we moved out of Oxy, and that was because we saw the revenue growth begin to contract there. But overall, uh, we're, we're increasing our exposure to energy as crude oil moves to the top end of this yearly range between 63 and 85 dollars. And I just think collectively, you know, this is the challenge when you have the conversation about inflation, because the, the, the commodity, the commodity aspect of the inflation formula does not look like one that's going to contribute favorably. You have the effect of El Nino, which is causing droughts and affecting agriculture. You have energy prices that are pushing up towards its high. We see the the challenges surrounding increasing supply. So I think it's important to understand that commodity aspect. And then you have steel and copper which is a byproduct of the industrial sector doing well, there's strength there also. So you may have seen the trough in the commodity cycle earlier this year because there clearly was a contractionary element to it. And I think right now, the exposure that we have in energy, we're more than comfortable. Yes, I want to recap your moves really quick. Bought Coterra, Halliburton, Schlumberger, sold energy transfer, and Occidental Petroleum. Those are your moves there. Jason, I'm going to come over to you. You have some energy exposure as well. Um, let's look at oil prices right now. After the Saudis announced their cuts back in June, uh, Brent at 76.50, now almost 10 bucks higher. Yeah. Is this the time to make that move into energy? Or are we expecting a big rebound? So I think that's a really important point, uh, Frank, on just the cuts that the Saudis have made. And, 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 and said they deepen. 
hundred percent. And we've, we talked about it going into this year about just the, the, the mismatch between supply and demand as it relates to energy. So crude is up 12 percent, almost almost 12 percent in the last month. You know, energy, the XLE is up almost 11 percent in the last three months. Not that they always trade in line with each other, but I think China also starting to come back online. We're starting to see a little bit of strength there. You know, energy was pricing in a recession. And I don't think, as we talked about this soft landing uh, narrative, I don't think that, I think you can't hold energy back. And I think energy will start to run. Is the softening dollar also a factor, you think, in this, in this upside move, specifically when it comes to oil? I think so. I think so. And I think also, as, as interest rates have risen, you know, the storage costs of, of energy are also play a role here in, in starting to let some of that go. So I think that also plays a role, and I think energy can move here. All right. Jim, you got some, uh, some pretty broad energy exposure as well. What's your take? I mean, is it time for a real shift, or do you just want to maybe boost your energy exposure but hold on to those tech holdings? So from a stock point of view, I'm overweight energy. I very strongly believe that the next couple of years you're going to see good price returns on the shares. I do want to point out a lot of people have said, well, energy really has not done well this year. Got it in terms of the stocks. That's because the last three years it's been on fire, and this is a classic consolidation phase. It's hard to see energy stocks not performing well with where crude oil is. Now, on the bearish side for the energy sector, okay, we have to acknowledge that natural gas prices really are quite low, and they've been low for some time. Why is that? That's an unwind of what happened a year ago where people got really, really worried about Nord Stream 1 and what was going on in Europe. Europe skated through last winter with a mild winter, and they managed to fill their, their uh, reservoirs with gas from alternate sources like LNG in Norway. I have no idea what the winter is going to be like this year, either in Europe or elsewhere. But I will say that with where natural gas prices are right now, it is more likely that the asymmetrical trade is to the upside in natural gas prices than to the downside. And if that's the case, that is likely to be the catalyst that moves the energy stock sector meaningfully higher. All right. Shannon, agree, disagree. I'm looking at the dollar right now, down three quarters of a percent in the second half of the year. So we're talking about a lot of macro factors, we're talking about OPEC, Saudi saying they're going to deepen their cuts. Also, the potential for a big rise in oil demand, whether it's El Nino, a cold Europe this winter instead of an unseasonably warm uh, Europe last winter. What's your outlook for just the overall energy sector? Well, I think Jim makes a great point, right? And we and he and I have differed on this over the course of, you know, last couple of years or I've so, I would say. I've forgotten all about that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, because there's clearly supply longer term is an issue. You know what I mean? And, and everybody agrees with that. So it's really about what's happening in the near term. Commodity prices have been pressured lower. And Jim, and not just um, Joe and Jim both talked about not just energy, but other commodities as well, industrial metals, it's been pressured lower because we've expected this recession, whether mild or deep. And at some point, you start unwinding that trade, you're going to see that increase in demand. Now, to the flip side of that, to Jim's point, you know, higher energy prices, they don't solve other problems in the market, however. So I think we want to be really careful to think about what are the ramifications and implications if we continue to see this kind of, if, if oil stays in this range and a little bit higher, that has broader implications for the global economy on the inflation side. Um, and so I would just be very careful to understand that there's, there is a tipping point there where we need to be cognizant of how this could affect policy, particularly from the Fed. You know, that's really a great point. I mean, oil prices get high enough, gas prices get high enough. Last time I look, I think uh, regular and lead is about 3.85 a gallon right now. We get up to about $4 a gallon on gas. That's certainly inflationary. And, and people start to, you know, start pinching their pennies and start thinking about when, when they're filling up. So a Absolutely. lot to watch there. 
All right, still ahead, we have our call of the day. One airline stock getting an upgrade to buy. The committee debates if you, sh if you should add it to your portfolio. Much more halftime, back in two minutes. All right, welcome back to halftime. Let's get to our call of the day. United Airlines catching an upgrade to buy with an 80-buck price target at Redburn. The firm calling for more than a 50% upside from the current levels. Joe, you just added this name to the Joe TETF. So United Airlines was added along with Delta. And let me be clear. Um, fundamentally, we're obviously seeing an improvement in the conditions that I know Jimmy's going to look at when he studies the airlines. But this is purely from the perspective of what has price done, how has momentum improved, and what does the improvement of momentum suggest moving forward. And the improvement in momentum raises the probability that you're talking about in the case of United Airlines, potentially going back to December of 2018 high at $97. In March of 2021, United Airlines peaked. It was in a downtrend, moving lower, and then ultimately that lower move evolved into something of more of a sideways pattern. More recently in the spring, we've seen that momentum has returned once again and in a very positive capacity. So we take a position uh, in United Airlines and Delta Airlines as well with the understanding that the probability has now been raised that the price target right. that you've talked about uh, could be achieved and even go beyond there to get back to where we were five years ago at that uh, 90 plus dollar range. So I just want to be clear, you agree 50 percent upside despite, you know, labor costs, the company saying they see flat costs in the next year, OEM delays, uh, delayed max 10 certification. So there, there's quite a few issues here. So I am purely focusing on the momentum factor. OK, okay? Uh, the fundamental factor scores. OK, but what has the strategy going into these airlines is based on the price movement and the significant price movement in the near term. And you just get a higher probability that as that positive momentum builds, that you can make the return once again uh, back towards the five-year high. So I understand what you're saying with the fundamentals, right. right? Those are all questions that's asking the question why. Really what we're doing here is asking the question what and responding to what we're seeing. But it sounds like you're saying it's a pretty aggressive upgrade, a pretty aggressive price target, but possible in your mind. Uh, it, it is, but again, it's, it's, it's rules-based, okay. it's non-discretionary, and you're trusting the statistical evidence of the past to guide you towards and you're the future. A trust, you're a trusting soul. I want to talk about some other momentum, the Jets ETF, coming off its worst week since mid-March, on track to snap a three-quarter win streak. Jim, you have a lot of uh, airline exposure. Uh, Alaska, Delta Airlines, Boeing. What do you think about this call? What do you think about the airline sector in general? Speaking of momentum, consumer spending momentum going into airlines over the last few months. At some point, we have to think that's going to tail off, no pun intended. Yeah, um, no, but so we've been talking about that for a year and a half, haven't we? I mean, we have. Um, and, and let's just, for a second, focus on United Airlines. I know you brought up jets, but they're all kind of trading the same, right? It's been a, a lousy month, but other than that, it's been a great year-to-date period for these companies. And if you look at the trajectory of analyst revisions on earnings for all of these companies, they are just taking off, pun intended. Um, so United Airlines, that's the subject of the, the discussion. So I just want to focus on that. It's earnings for this year. The projections have gone up by 75% from the beginning of the year. 
but yet the stock still trades it. I mean, I have to double check this, like four and a half times earnings. That's literally what it's trading at. So um, I can talk all day long about the bullishness I feel for the airlines versus what the market feels. There's a disconnect there. Here's what the positive is. And Shannon, you and I were talking about the wealth effect. I'm not going to steal your line because it's great. But I am going to bring the wealth effect into the companies itself. The longer that these companies trade at these multiples, generating free cash flow, the more they're going to be able to repair balance sheets, buy back shares at attractive prices. So this is just something where the longer you wait and the longer the market denies the fundamental bullishness of these stocks, the more they are doing with their free cash flow to make the future brighter. It's, it's, a, it's a very benign situation. And right. just to tag on just for one second on the United, you know, one of the major reasons for the upgrade here was that their CapEx was going to be expanded out two years, you know, delayed. So, you know, you think about that, that's very critical to Jim's point about free cash flow. They're not going to be using it on that for the next two years. Okay. So, All right. To your point, Jim, uh, United Airlines trading about four and a half times forward earnings. All right. Time now for the headlines. We're going to toss things over to our Contessa Brewer. Contessa. Frank, more than 120 million people in the United States on the eastern seaboard could be in for severe thunderstorms. A big storm system moving east after hitting the Ohio River Valley. And forecasters are warning of damaging wind, large hail, heavy rain and perhaps tornadoes. Maryland, southern Pennsylvania, New Jersey and D.C. will bear the brunt, we're told. The Coast Guard rescued a 25-year-old man who disappeared off the Florida coast. Charles Gregory failed to return to a boat ramp. He was missing for nearly two days and then got spotted by an air crew. The Coast Guard said he was sitting in a partially submerged 12-foot John boat several miles offshore. Now, back on dry land, we're told, doing well. And Barbie made history, hitting the $1 billion mark at the global box office. Barely three weeks after its release, Greta Gerwig is the first solo female director to reach the milestone. A senior media analyst at Comscore says Barbie is one of about 50 films in history to have hit that mark. How is that for feminism, Frank? A lot of great reviews, Contessa. Have you seen it? Not yet. I'm holding off for some, like, I'm a little late to the party and I had nobody to go with. The boys in my family were like, no thanks. <laughs> Right, we have to find somebody for you to go with. I think Thank Seema. You. Seema's coming up later in the show. I think she might want to go again. Uh, you know what? Frank is trying to set up a play date for me. What does that say about <laughs> the state of my social life? I think we better leave it there. <laughs> Arkansas Brewery, great to see you. All right, coming up next here on Halftime, why it's put up or shut up time for the SEC when it comes to approving a Bitcoin ETF. Bob Pisani on deck with those details. Much more Halftime back right after this. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Check out shares of PayPal trading more than 2% higher today as the company takes a big step into crypto, the first fintech to launch a dollar-backed stablecoin. The move comes as the world awaits the first Bitcoin ETF. For more on that, let's get to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Bob? Hello, Frank. It's put up or shut up time for the SEC. Now, they are required to give a response to ARK's application for a Bitcoin ETF, spot Bitcoin ETF, by August 13th. Many other Bitcoin ETFs are behind them, including BlackRock and Wisdom Tree. Yes, no, or punt it down the road. What's it going to be? Let's talk with a man who has one of those applications in. This is Matt Hogan. He's the chief investment officer for Bitwise Asset Management. Matt, thanks for joining us. You've also filed for the Bitwise Bitcoin ETF Trust just behind ARK. Handicap this for us. Does the SEC say yes, no, or do they try to punt it down the road? I think they're likely to punt it down the road, Bob. You know, if you look at the history of spot Bitcoin ETF applications, the SEC has taken the full 240 days that it has to review these applications. They're complex applications. They want to take their time and do their homework. This August 13th deadline is just a check-in 
the SEC can push it out to 240 days, yeah. which ends in early January. That's what I expect. So the drop dead date is early January, then, if they try to push it out here. OK, the crypto community is, has been very excited about this because this current crop of applicants has a surveillance sharing agreement with exchanges like Nasdaq and SIBO. And, and my understanding is this would allow for the sharing of information about market trading activity and clearing activity, customer identification, and it would reduce the chances for market ma manipulation. And it would also seek to ensure that investor assets can't be diverted by the exchange to an unauthorized party. So is this sufficient to address the SEC's concerns about fraud and manipulation? Will this get it over the finish line? <laughs> you know, I don't think there's any silver bullet on a spot Bitcoin ETF. People are looking for one thing that it will get it over the finish line. I think the SEC is looking at the totality of circumstances. So these surveillance sharing agreements are an important new addition. But it's also important that we've had Bitcoin futures ETFs trading well in the market for two years. It's important that the CME market is bigger and more established. It's important that we have better regulations, better understanding of custody. It's going to take not one silver bullet, but a, a fusillade of accurately placed shots. The good news, Bob, is I think these are the best applications we've seen over the last decade that we've been yeah. trying to get a spot Bitcoin ETF. So I am optimistic. Yeah, there's a, speaking of optimism, there's an awful lot of optimism out there in the crypto community. They're just ecstatic. They, they say the SEC has approved a, a two times leveraged Bitcoin ETF. That happened recently. Uh, that's a sign they're softening up, they say. But the biggest comment I hear is this lawsuit that Grayscale has brought against the SEC. Uh, Grayscale wants to convert the Grayscale trust to a Bitcoin ETF. The SEC has denied them. And in some of the hearings, the judge seems to be have been very hostile to why the SEC has approved Bitcoin futures and not a spot ETF. So we're expecting a ruling sometime in the fall. I just spoke with Michael Sonnenschein from Grayscale. He tells me we could get a ruling any day now. Could that, if it moved the dial, if it went in Grayscale's favor? Absolutely. That is another thing that can move to the dial and adds to this general collection of facts that is pointing us in the direction of a spot Bitcoin ETF. You know, it is important to note, this is the SEC that approved a futures ETF, as you said, approved a 2x futures ETF, is now thinking about ETH futures ETFs. So it's not an SEC that says no. It's an SEC that takes its time. The court case could accelerate that. We saw that in Canada when they approved spot Bitcoin ETFs. There was a big legal win that pushed those over the line. So this is a big help. We're getting closer than we've ever been, Bob. Yeah, this could be within a couple of days or even weeks away. We're going to keep an eye on that, Matt. Thanks very much. Much more with Matt on gaming the odds for a spot Bitcoin ETF coming up on ETF Edge. That's 1.10 p.m. Eastern time. Plus a special guest, legendary financial author William Bernstein on his new edition of his investment classic. That's the four pillars of investing on how to use ETFs to build a long-term portfolio. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Frank, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. Our Bob Pisani with ETF Edge. All right, turning now to industrials among today's top performing sectors where the committee is finding opportunity in that group. We're going to tell you coming up on halftime right after this break. Stay with us. Industrials gaining ground among the day's top performers with the number of stocks hitting new 52-week highs today. Our Seema Modi joins us now 
with more on what's behind the move. Seema? Well, Frank, the old economy continues to roar back, as witnessed by some of the big industrials like Caterpillar that have reported a rebound in demand, a sharp contrast really to what the economic data is showing, which shows that the U.S. manufacturing sector is in contraction following another uh, negative ISM print. Caterpillar, take a look at that name now, up 30% in the past three months, outpacing the gains of the big tech names like Google, Meta, and AMD. And with these gains, the iShares Industrials ETF is now trading at a price-to-earnings ratio, which is above its five-year average. Now, that is raising some valuation concerns. Melius analysts, though, they point to supply chain issues getting better and inventory levels normalizing as two signs that this rally can continue. The market now really counting down to John Deere earnings. Its competitor, CNH Industrial in the ag equipment space, did see weaker sales for the quarter, some delays on sprayer production. So we'll see if Deere has the same issues when it reports next week. Frank? All right, Seema, thank you very much. We've got a lot of industrials ownership on the desk here right now. Jim, I'm going to come over to you. You own Deer, which is, has a report coming up. You also own Raytheon, which has obviously had some issues recently. Uh, shares dropping off due to some Pratt & Whitney issues and also earnings that didn't seem to wow investors. What's your take on what Seema has to say about this outperformance by industrials recently? First and foremost, this sector, Frank, is so wide and diverse that it's hard to really pin it down to any one mode of force. You didn't mention this, but it also includes aerospace and defense. It includes the airlines. So there's a lot of mode of forces here. But at its simplest, I think what we have to realize is the next two to, two to three years, you're going to see a lot of industrial activity. Um, this is coming not just from supply chain onshoring, not just from infrastructure spending, but pent-up industrial production from the likes of Boeing, General Motors, all of the all of the auto manufacturers, which are chasing to rebuild inventory after supply chain shortages for many years now. So there is going to be industrial activity of all sorts for the next two to three years, and it's probably going to benefit all those sectors. Not at the same time, okay? So you know you might see something like Raytheon okay. uh, spin in the mud a little bit while it works through its Pratt and Whitney. Uh, problems. Or you might see, you know, we mentioned Deer. Deer's had a heck of a rally here over the last couple of months. It might consolidate a little bit here. But overall, this sector has a lot of positive forces going for it. So you mentioned aerospace and defense. Obviously, we had some ships off the coast of Alaska, Russian and Chinese ships the U.S. military was concerned about. Um, Shannon, I'm going to come over to you. Does that, does that one of the factors that you think can continue to push industrials higher? Well, I, again, I go back to the argument around energy that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, you're looking at the opportunity to potentially move some of your exposure back to cyclicals or add to your cyclical exposure at a point where it, it feels like we're a couple quarters out from an inflection higher in the in the global economy. Um, I think that there some of these. Um, specific situations can potentially refocus investors in this space. But to Jim's point, this is a great sector for you to be able to express a number of different macro views and benefit from some really strong execution from some of the companies that operate here. Yeah, I think there's no better example of any S&P sector than the industrial about how the micro matters more than the macro, how going bottoms up matters more than going top down. And the industrial sector is just a classic example of that in 2023. Uh, I believe there's 75 industrial names in the S&P 500. The best performing industrial year to date is GE. Really? I mean, I, 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 that's remarkable to me. And I think very few people had that uh, in their consensus expectations. So whether it's it's Caterpillar or Illinois Tool Works, some of your holdings, or, or Copart or uh, Old Dominion, which are doing well, or even FedEx, which is having a nice snapback recovery year relative to 2022, it's going bottoms up. It's the micro that really matters more than anything else. 
And to Jimmy's point, you could look universally at the sector and say, okay, on a valuation basis, it's rich on a historical perspective. How much longer can the momentum continue? But it's all these individual stories that are, are really propelling the gain so far year to date. Yeah. And I think that continues. The yeah, evaluation is a question. As Seema mentioned, XLI trading at 22 times forward earnings. All right, coming up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime back right after this. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Looking at the markets right now in the green across the board. But earlier, Mike, we saw the NASDAQ kind of dip in between negative and positive territory. For sure. Uh, we're getting stress tested a little bit by this drop in Apple. It's been an interesting uh, back and forth dynamic among different parts of the market, Frank. I think last week's kind of choppiness, the, the move higher in yields, the, the hostile response on balance to most earnings reports, even the good ones, has most people on alert that maybe we're in you know, pullback mode. We're ripe for some kind of a, of a retreat in the indexes seasonally. Obviously, things get a little tougher here. Volatility is moving up off low levels. However, we're at least raising the possibility with the action here that it could be one of these kind of stealth uh, corrections or stealth pullbacks. You have the NASDAQ 100 almost 4% off its high. rest of the market hanging in there. Okay, I don't think it's time to declare victory, but it is interesting that uh, we're not getting the market on cue, uh, you know, kind of going across the board uh, to the downside yet, although yields calming down probably is helping the picture. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of uh, some banners right here talking about earnings coming up. Another big thing coming up on Thursday, CPI. Has that become more meaningful with some of the Fed talk coming out at the same time the market pricing in a pause no matter what the Fed says? It's, it's definitely meaningful, although the, um, the, the market impact of CPI has been more positive than not since last October when CPI peaked. So it seems as if we're conditioned to crave and so far get better inflation numbers. I do think if that pattern changes, if we get this storyline running through the markets, that it's going to be a little stickier. You're already seeing some of the market-based inflation expectations rise, things like you know Treasury inflation-protected securities yields, things like that. So, yeah, without a doubt, it could be another one of those uh, you know, chips thrown into the middle of the table, and, and the market has to say, I'm going to see it or raise it as to whether that was a good or bad number. All right, Mike Santoli with his midday word. Mike, thank you very much. As you can see, the Dow now at session highs. Time now for Grade My Trade. We're going to start off with Jason. Chris purchased Arista Networks for 160 at the end of July. It has since gone up. Should he take a quick profit or stay in longer? So I got to give this trade an A. I really like this company. I mean, one of the leaders in the cloud network solution space. Sales were up 39%. EPS was up 46% in the last quarter. I think there's momentum around the cloud, and AI would stay and hold this one. All right, this one's for Jim. Lee in Ohio owns Paramount. At 33.54, with Paramount reporting later today, what do you think he should do? Uh, Lee, I'm not going to grade your trade. I'm going to grade my trade on this, and it's a D minus. Okay, and the only reason it's not lower is I haven't thrown in the towel yet. They are reporting earnings uh, tonight, and here's what we should be looking for to inform the answer to your question. They need to reconfirm that 2024 they go back to positive free cash flow. Now, there's a lot of other moving parts here. I do think that their Paramount Plus sub ads are probably going to beat. Um, they always have the, the lever that they can pull of increasing the price that they charge on Paramount+. Plus. I think that's a good way that they can be- get back to positive free cash flow next year. All right, shares up 2.5% ahead of earnings. Final trades coming up next on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. Before we get to our final trades, going to go over to Shannon. Shannon, you're watching UPS ahead of earnings tomorrow. 
I think the implications around what's happening with UPS in terms of the labor contract and the additional costs that some of these labor negotiations may result in, we could see that across a number of different companies and industries in terms of labor being able to create even stickier wages than the rest of the businesses that we're all thinking about are, are going to be facing. Yes, yeah, certainly. We're also going to get our first comments from UPS about the deal or expecting to get them on the earnings call tomorrow. All right, time now for final trades. Jim, kick us off. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, I mean, firing on all cylinders, but I think the one thing to consider here is the $140 billion war chest that Warren Buffett has. If the market does swoon, swoon he's going to sweep in. Jason? Morgan Stanley, I think capital formation is definitely troughing. I think you could own this name. I all right. like it here. Joe, you got the last word on this one. I like both of those calls. Uh, Valero is a name that you can take a look at. It's trading right now at 129. We're seeing a little bit of an uptick from a risk management's perspective. You want to use 119, 118 area as a stop loss. There you go. Uh, shares of Valero up two and a quarter percent right now. One quick check of the markets right now. The Dow trading at session highs. The S&P pretty much the same. The Nasdaq, I believe, as well, up almost a quarter of a percent right now. The Russell, the only one in the red. And that's going to do it for us here on Halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer.